It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Terry Liu, an attorney at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to mockbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Or give us a call at 312-726-1243. Micah 6.8 instructs us to do justice and love mercy. What does this look like in our lives? Today I will be speaking with Kate Trammell, the Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship which is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former inmates, and their families. Kate is well-versed in criminal law and research and has unique experience conducting state-level advocacy campaigns while equipping local churches for political engagement. Kate, welcome to our show. Thanks, Terry. It's great to be with you. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Kate, your background. Sure. So... Um, As you mentioned, I work with Prison Fellowship overseeing our state policy campaigns, but I I did not always have the intention of working in criminal law. You know, as a law student, I just, like so many, knew I had a heart for impacting people. So I was looking for opportunities to engage in child advocacy and adoption, and little did I know that what God had in store for me was very different. So after graduation, I worked at the magistrate in Virginia, which really meant a day-to-day crash course for criminal matters and what that looks like for real people. So every day I wait decisions on warrants, bond determinations, all of those things that are the ins and outs of the justice system, and looked into the eyes of the men and women who committed the crimes, their families, and so often their victims. That really stirred me to get on the front end of reform and begin looking at public policy and how to shape our culture's response to crime. Hmm. What were the uh, sort of experiences uh, during that period of your life that were the most impactful on you personally? Well, you know, it was really a mixed bag. Um, Every day I was the main person working in my local jail who was the first judicial point of contact for people who had been um, charged with an offense. And I would be determining probable cause, setting their bond and release, Um, and talking with their families, interviewing law enforcement. And I would say each of those experiences of getting hands-on and face-to-face with people as they're impacted by the system on all sides really began to show me the human cost of Mm. both crime and our response to crime and how important it is to integrate, specifically as a believer, our faith in our approach to how the system plays out around us. Mm. Yeah, I think for those who have experience with the criminal justice system and, and for those who don't and perhaps, you know, just hear about it uh, secondhand or, or know it by what they see on TV, the criminal justice system can seem very cold and sort of unfeeling. And it sounds like your early work experience allowed you to to have a very personal um, experience of how that was impacting people and what it was like to, to process people through that system. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think at some levels, and because it's a a system that's based on law and kind of larger responses to human acts, it can be kind of cold. 
And that often the people who are involved on all sides, prosecutors, law enforcement, people who are charged with crime and their families, their victims, and we have to remember that there are real people with flesh and blood and that how we treat them really matters and is reflective of our hearts as a culture. Yeah, so, so you mentioned those early experiences kind of directed you to, to want to explore and invest in the area of criminal justice reform. Um, can you give our listeners a sense of what's going on in criminal justice reform right now? Sure. So now my work is at Prison Fellowship overseeing all of our state policy campaigns. And I will say, you know, Prison Fellowship has been engaged in prison ministry for about 43 years now and a voice for justice from a biblical perspective for 40 of those years. But never before has there really been this blossoming and this momentum to re-examine how our nation approaches justice. So there's a lot of movement in criminal justice reform right now. And while Congress has made some big moves, including the First Step Act, which we strongly supported, really the states have been the leading edge of this. So states across the nation are, for example, thinking about how they sentence crimes. Is it proportional? Does it fit? Does it meet the needs of public safety? And we encourage them to consider along with those things, does it reflect the human dignity of the person involved or the people involved and the opportunity where possible for a second chance? So there's a lot of what this looks like across the states as policymakers are getting creative in how they respond to crime, trying to protect the public, get the best outcomes that they can, and also prioritize opportunities for reintegration for the people who we know will be released from the system. Hmm. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Terry Liu of the law firm of Mock and Baker. If you missed part of this show or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit mockbaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today we've been speaking with Kate Trammell, Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship, about current uh, interest and momentum toward criminal justice reform here in the U.S. Uh, so Kate, I I'm sure you um, encounter this idea a lot, um, but, but I think a lot of people operate along the spectrum where, um, especially uh, in the in the arena of criminal justice, that uh, people feel like they're being asked to make a decision to either embrace something that makes people more safe or less safe. And it's very sort of binary. How do you respond to, to that sort of uh, mindset? Sure. Well, you know, I view it as an opportunity more than anything to explain what actually makes people more safe. As as an organization that's a voice for justice reform, we never sacrifice public safety. It's never our desire. But what we've found through data and experience working in these issues for so long is that often what makes people safer can be counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the lock them up and throw away the key approach that our country has tested and tried often results in really high recidivism rates, people returning mm -hmm. to prison, um, after just a few years, sometimes on worse offenses. And we want to prevent that. So what we have found is that whenever we're careful that the penalty fits the crime, that the sentence isn't unduly burdensome, and that someone's time, if they are incarcerated, is constructive, giving them opportunities to change their behavior, to address those underlying impulses, to build a better life, um, and then they're faced on the outside with opportunities to practice that in a healthy way. Those are the things that really make communities safe. 
I see. Um, before the break, you mentioned something, I think, called the First Step Program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the First Step Act was um, passed through Congress and signed into law at the end of last year. And it's something that Prison Fellowship was glad to work on and support. Um, my colleagues who worked on the Hill worked on that for, in fact, a number of years. And in general, um, it impacted federal prisoners um, who were composed of about 50% drug offenses, all of which are distribution of some sort. Um, but that reform that was so impactful uh, that many called the the biggest criminal justice reform in a generation, certainly wow. the biggest through Congress, was really built off of a state model, including in response to reforms that were passed in Texas, which inspired lawmakers like Senator John Cornyn to draft the prison reform section of that. Um, and, you know, that has had really strong impacts across the nation and is, I think, a great example of how state policy informs federal policy so that they can test strategies and see what's good and employ it at the federal level. Hmm. Um, can you give some examples of, of how the First Step Act has uh, impacted uh, state policies across the country? Sure. So, um, you know, in addition to being sort of responsive to what states like Texas have done in mm -hmm. prioritizing prison bed space for people who truly need it and offering uh, some some credits for good time and earned time for those who are incarcerated. The First Step Act really did inspire some states who had been reluctant to embrace reform to start looking at how to approach it on their own. So seeing it's sort of a, a dual approach. Um, Congress was responsive to what the states had passed and took a major step to impact the federal prison system. Mm -hmm. And in response, states that had been reluctant for political reasons or unsure how to embrace reform began to pass what they call their own first step acts. So we saw this in states like Florida that passed a modest version of its own called the Florida First Step Act just this last spring. Mm. Even though it was modest, uh, I assume that you consider that a, step, a positive step or a step in the right direction? Of course. You know, I think any time that a state is looking at how to um, better hold people accountable for crime, um, better approach issues of corrections and incarceration, and do so with data and with um, a view towards how to prioritize the dignity and, and the value and opportunity for everyone involved, that's a step in the right direction. You've uh, alluded to your personal faith as, as part of the reason why you're interested in criminal justice reform. Is there a particular passage or verse in the Bible that motivates your work in this area? Yeah, you know, I think um, a lot of the New Testament and the admonishment to Christians on, on how to live and, and how to behave in view of our salvation has been so impactful for me in this work, particularly in Titus. You know, Scripture reminds us that we were all once sinners of the worst sort, but our status before God changed because of God's mercy poured out through the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, verse, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say it's not because of righteous things that we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Coming up, we will talk further with Kate Trammell, Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship, about what can be done to enact positive change in the criminal justice system. I'm Terry Liu, and this is Lawyers for Jesus.
Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Terry Liu, an attorney at Mock and Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals with their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to mockbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we've been speaking with Kay Trammell, Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship, about criminal justice reform. So, uh, Kate, before, uh, in the first segment, you were talking about how there is this need uh, for criminal justice reform uh, here in the U.S., and, and you identified that need uh, partially due to your own experiences dealing with the criminal justice system, um, but also uh, in your position as uh, the Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship. Um, can you give us uh, some examples of certain policies uh, in particular that are a problem? Sure. Well, we know that simply by the numbers, our nation is the leading incarcerator in the world with about 2.2 million men and women behind bars. And most of these are in state prisons and jails. In addition to that, um, even broader numbers tell us that about one in three Americans have a record of arrest, conviction, or incarceration. And even after they've served time or paid their debt, men and women with a criminal record face about 44,000 documented legal barriers to things like housing, education, and meaningful employment. So the problem is large. Uh, but at the state level, there's, there's a lot bubbling up. And some issues related to criminal justice reform that I commonly see are overly harsh penalties that subvert justice. So an example of this would be lengthy incarceration terms for low-level offenses, like basic drug possession. Uh, There are a lot of states that are grappling with the opioid crisis, trying to understand how to deal with overcrowded prisons, due in large part to crimes like this. Uh, But there are opportunities to solve these problems in creative ways, like drug courts that really require accountability and behavioral change for their participants and give the chance to address underlying behavior, and really, ultimately, end the person's interaction with the justice system with an opportunity for a second chance and sometimes even without a criminal conviction, so escaping those 44,000 barriers that I talked about. Mm. Yeah, before I joined Mock and Baker, um, you know, I spent some time in Indiana and, and I worked at a Subway sandwich shop. One of my coworkers uh, had been incarcerated for a few years, and as I worked with him, uh, he was able to share details of his story, but he told me that he hurt his back, and as a result, he was prescribed uh, painkillers, powerful painkillers, which he then became addicted to, Um, and then he eventually was arrested for possession uh, of those pain medications, and and just seeing the struggles that he went through as he was, I mean, he was sort of just trying to live his life, um, and he was, uh, to some extent, a victim of his circumstances, Um, but yeah, it's shining a spotlight on, on the difficulties that people experience even after um, they're no, no longer incarcerated, um, I think um, really provides a lot of important insight into what the issues are in the criminal justice system and, and why there is an importance uh, to, to focus on reform. Um, you mentioned that uh, there are sort of these issues um, across the nation, but um, are you seeing that the issues are also specific um, on a state-to-state level? Sure. You know, one of the the beauties and complexities of state policy, as a lot of um, attorneys who work in the system understand, is that, you know, it varies. States are called the laboratories of democracy for a reason. Mm. And so 
Um, often, whenever we begin work in a new state, there's there's a whole new criminal code to learn. There's a lot of nuances to how it's applied. Um, but that also means that states can get more creative in their response than the federal government often ha- can. So um, I think an example of this is exactly in in addressing what reentry looks like for men and women who have a criminal record. There are states that are working on things as interesting and unique as reforming occupational licensing so that instead of having a blanket ban on anyone with a criminal record from, say, um, being a a florist, as in Louisiana, where they actually require a license to be a florist, they can say, okay, does, does this best protect public safety and give people opportunity? And the answer is often no. You know, we need a more tailored response. States are also looking at things like why they suspend driver's licenses for fines and fees that aren't paid and whether that's appropriate and just a lot of variety in opportunity for states to respond better to these issues. Hmm. Um, In your opinion, who is most disadvantaged by the current system? Across the board, I would say what data shows us and what experience shows us is that people of a lower socioeconomic class are most negatively impacted by the criminal justice system. And this is for a lot of reasons. Uh, A lot of the system has to do with access to funds, whether that's to post bond so that you can get out of jail before your trial, and to secure adequate representation in court, which often has high expenses associated with it, paying fines and fees that are related to a criminal offense, um, and, and a lot more that comes after your release. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Terry Liu of the law firm Mock and Baker, and we're talking with Kate Trammell, Director of State Policy at Prison Fellowship, about the work that Prison Fellowship does uh, to drive a criminal justice reform here in the U.S. Uh, so, Kate, uh, tell us what Prison Fellowship is doing to enact positive change in this area. Sure. So we run campaigns on public policy to change law at the state and federal level each year. So we are, we are active on the Hill and in being proponents for policy that's restorative in response to justice. Um, and also at the state level, usually in about 10 to 15 states in a really targeted way each year. And in addition, we have national campaigns that are aimed at changing culture, changing the way that we think of how to address issues of crime and incarceration. And one big piece of this is the Justice Declaration. And the Justice Declaration is just a a simple statement of principles in how the church can and should respond to issues of crime and incarceration. And we have great partners in creating that statement, including the National Association of Evangelicals, the Colson Center on Christian Worldview, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's a great sort of central point in how the Christians and the church should respond to these issues in their own community and also in the public square. Uh, Are you able to partner effectively with lawmakers? Yes, you know, this is a a big piece of what I do day to day and what my team does day to day, is to work with lawmakers at the state level in particular in helping equip them to solve policy issues related to justice and corrections issues. Uh, So we do this all the time, uh, whether it's by providing research or insight or working on how to word a bill and how to make sure that it's 
it's advocated for appropriately as it moves through the system. And we also have a group that we call the Faith and Justice Fellowship, which is a group of state and federal elected and appointed officials who agree that they work on criminal justice issues on the basis of their faith values, whatever faith that may be. And we bring them together to, to share ideas and to help absorb cutting-edge research and to really stay abreast of the issues so that across state lines, across federal and state systems, the best ideas are raised to the surface. Mm. That's great. Um, and how can ordinary people help make a difference in this area? A couple ways come to mind. I mean, I think first and foremost, anyone can practice their faith. Any believer can put their faith into action in the public square or at the dinner table or in the pew. You can be a voice for justice anywhere you are by thinking through how the key biblical values of redemption and justice that play out throughout Scripture can be reflected in your own life. And then, very tangibly, you can sign the Justice Declaration. So you can go to justicedeclaration.org today, add your name to the list of several thousand Christians across the nation who have signed up, and you'll also get updates on how you can be a voice for justice that restores people in your own community who are impacted by crime and incarceration as a result. Hmm. Um, is Prison Fellowship able to use the, ju the Justice Declaration um, to put pressure on lawmakers? Like, how exactly does the organization utilize the Justice Declaration? Well, we use it in a couple of ways. You know, I think um, one way is to educate lawmakers on how people of faith feel, and specifically people of a Christian faith feel, about applying their values to the criminal justice system. Often, I find at the state level, there is there's a void of people of faith speaking into issues of crime and incarceration and a desire for mm. that. So a real opportunity for the church to be amplified in ministry and in advocacy as they're faced with these issues. And the Justice Declaration is a great platform to use for that. That sounds great. I, I would recommend our listeners go check that out. And they, can they find the Justice Declaration on your website? They can, yes. So if, they, if you just Google Justice Declaration, it should be the top hit. Or you can go to justicedeclaration.org, which will redirect you to the right page on our website. All right, Kate, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people learn more about your work at Prison Fellowship? So you can visit www.prisonfellowship.org to learn more and see all about our work in prisons and our work in justice reform. And we would love if you would sign up for the Justice Declaration so that we could stay in touch with you and share with you opportunities to engage in your own state. Thanks. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Mock and Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at mockbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website to subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thank you for listening. I'm Terry Liu, attorney at Mock and Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Somebody, yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.